Come then to the last of our studies in Proverbs at this time, and we're thinking this evening of names of Jesus. Our English word proverb, of course, is made up of two Latin words, pro and verbo. So a proverb is a sentence that is given instead of many words. It is a short statement that summarizes an important principle. The Hebrew word for proverb means a comparison. And many of the proverbs are comparisons or contrasts, like the proverb we thought of this morning about herbs and fattened oxen. Like most Oriental peoples, the Jews did much teaching through proverbs, and these short and catchy sentences are easy to remember and contain much condensed wisdom. We say, less is more. And so it is in these short proverbs. And perhaps this is a lesson for those of us who have teaching roles in this congregation. Rather than our verbosity, our long-windedness, or detailed reasoning, we can by thought, meditation, and effort distill our views, our advice, our opinions, our lessons, excuse the verbosity, into a pithy sentence. Perhaps parents need to use this approach more with their children. The use of short and snappy sentences convey fundamental principles into the lives of our children. My mother quotes her mother, who was given to hospitality, when she said, Divide small and serve all. A preacher's friend's mother sent him to school each day with the words, Remember whose you are and whom you serve. King Solomon, as we know, was the author of most of the Proverbs here. Chapters 1 to 24 were put together by him or his courtiers under the guidance of the Spirit, while Hezekiah's scribes formed the material in 25 to 29 from Solomon's Proverbs. But it's the last two chapters uh, that, that we think of, composed by, King, by Augur and King Lemuel, people whom we know so little about. It was written to the wise man, the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, verse 5 states, and to Solomon's son, chapter 1, verse 8 asserts, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. The book of Kings tells us that Solomon's servants listened to his wisdom. 1 Kings 10 verse 8. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. King Solomon it seems was a kind of principal or professor of a school of wise men in Jerusalem. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 9, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Hence, son, in the book of Proverbs, is addressed to pupils, perhaps in the University of Jerusalem. The book of Proverbs may have served as a kind of teacher's manual for the wise people of Israel, easily memorized. The Proverbs themselves were maxims of wisdom to give 
all people guidance for life. The primary teaching of the book of Proverbs, as we have learned over our studies, is that true wisdom is based on the fear of the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. From the book of Proverbs, we have learned that truth does not have to be presented in a boring manner. Teaching on God's standards do not have to be dull. In Proverbs, there is humor, simile, metaphor, illustration, parallelism, parable. We do not grow weary in this book of Proverbs or we do not lose interest. There are one-liners, there are paragraphs, there are number-based Proverbs. There's a gripping book of the Bible, a favorite with many of you. And so our family worship times, our evangelism, our Sabbath school classes could model Proverbs and be gripping, memorable, and I should add my sermons in there as well. We find here the answer to our society, don't we? The fear of the Lord. Our society has and is missing this fundamental assertion. Our denomination seeks to draw attention to the covenants signed in 1638 and 1643, which advocate a turning to God, an honoring of God, a worshiping of God, a fearing of God, the place of true blessing and life along with removing the icons of slavery in our society our culture is removing from public buildings plaques which contain the ten commandments such legislative teaching they argue such directives are offensive they claim to the members of our society but Proverbs asserts that's exactly the place of blessing, of true knowledge, of true wisdom, the fear of the Lord. But we are not to be content with the wisdom of Solomon, but to find in the Proverbs of Solomon, the one who's described in Scripture as the greater than Solomon. Just as the visit of the Queen of Sheba drew out the wisdom from Solomon with all her hard questions you remember in 1 Kings 4 and points, Jesus says, to the greater than Solomon. That moment, that experience that, that when, he, when he was answering on the cuff, answering verbally, gave us insight into the greater than Solomon. How much more so these proverbs Inspired by the Spirit, working through Solomon, lead us to the one who's greater than Solomon and who lived out this wisdom of Proverbs in all its fullness in what he said and thought and did. And in finding Jesus in Proverbs, as we've tried to do, we are finding life, as chapter 8 asserts. To know Jesus is to know wisdom. To know truth, to know joy, to know peace, to know life, as chapter 8 claims. I was fascinated by the article in the London Times yesterday by Ayan Hirsi Ali, raised a Muslim, struggled with the emptiness of life, turned to all kinds of things to fulfill her emptiness. 
then began reading the New Testament. And in her two-page article in the London Times yesterday, she wrote, There is no need to look for some new age concoction of medication and mindfulness. Christianity has it all. As we finish our studies in Proverbs and considering Jesus in Proverbs, we are finding life. We are finding the answer to the searching in our communities and unbelievers in our family and unbelievers in our workplace. This is where they need to come to find the Jesus revealed in this book of Proverbs. We're focusing on three parts of Proverbs which are quoted in the New Testament in reference to the Lord Jesus. Read with me chapter 30 and verse 4. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the water in a garment? Who has established all the ends of earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Here in the words of Agar, in the heart of the Old Testament, there's another hint, I'm arguing, of the doctrine of the Trinity. We have many hints of the three persons and the one God scattered throughout the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 1. Let us make man Do I see it? Chapter 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And here in the book of Proverbs is another hint, another indication of the Trinity. What is his son's name? In Proverbs, the term son has been used many times, as we've already said. Professor Solomon is addressing his pupils in the University of Jerusalem, probably. And so the term often refers to an alert, an apt pupil of the teacher of wisdom. And like the teacher, the pupil will become deep, hard to fathom, filled with wisdom. But it seems clear that this use of son takes us beyond the students in the University of Jerusalem and takes us into heaven into that Trinitarian relationship between the Father and the Spirit and the second person of the Godhead. What is his son's name? This question, what is his son's name, you can see is included in a series of five questions. And the point of these numerous questions is to indicate that that God is inscrutable his works and power are beyond what you and I can perform or understand look at the questions the first question who has ascended to heaven and come down seems to mean that God has all wisdom stored in heaven but no human can penetrate up into heaven and capture that wisdom The people at the Tower of Babel were trying to do that, to build a tower up to heaven and storm heaven and capture its knowledge and wisdom and power. But none have been able to do that. He's above us. He's inscrutable. He's beyond us. 
The second question emphasizes the same point. There's the mighty wind which wrecks havoc to forests and to roofs and to trampolines and to seaside houses. Who can control us? We stand back. We're amazed. We're afraid. But the infinite God, the God who's above us and inscrutable to us, he controls it. The rain enclosed in blankets we cannot control either. Sometimes we want less rain. Sometimes we want more rain. It's beyond our power and control. This is the inscrutable God, his government of the ends of the earth. The tribes in the furthest lands, the smallest nations, the furthest peoples. Far beyond the power of small and limited rulers. God in his reign and sovereignty is far beyond us. And so the question is asked in this fifth question. What is his name? Can you understand him fully? Can you comprehend his greatness that holds the winds, that controls the nations, that has all wisdom, that's impenetrable by humankind, that manages the rainfall? What is his name? So exalted is he, so inscrutable is he, so infinite he is beyond our grasp. To know a person's name is to know the person. I don't know anyone who lives in John Street. And so I don't know their interests. I don't know their defects, their achievements, their employment, their spiritual condition. I don't know their name, so I don't know them. To know God's name is to know him, to know about him, his character, his features. But we cannot know him fully. So infinite and great he is. And what he is, his son is. And what is his son's name? God is infinite. God is great. God is inscrutable. And so is his son. He too carries that infinite quality. And it's that point that Jesus refers to in Matthew eleven twenty-seven. No man knows who the Son is but the Father. What is his Son's name? And then he goes on, and no man knows the Father save the Son. What is his name and what is his Son's name? A statement of greatness and inscrutable depths and majesty. One of the interesting things about this statement is it's not made in a vacuum. Here is, is Agar. Possibly a wise man from the Masite tribe, well known for its wisdom. You see the reference in the ESV version and on the words the oracle down to the bottom of the page. Uh, referring to the, the Hebrew that underlies that translation, it could be translated that the margin says, the man of Massa. And perhaps he was a sage, an oriental, a wise leader of his tribe. But he's depressed. He's low. 
He says this in the first verse. I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God. And worn out. And it seems that God is responding to him. In verse number four. This is God's answer. This is God speaking to this low and depressed man who's weary as verses 2 and 3 go on to state because he doesn't know God. God is saying to him, you'll never know me. You'll never know me in my fullness. I'm beyond the grasp of small mankind. What is my name? What is my son's name? Humankind cannot grasp it. But though you cannot know me fully, You can know me truly as God, as Savior. And Jesus goes on then, doesn't he, in verse 28 of Matthew 11. After he's saying to the peoples, no one knows the Son but the Father. No one knows the Father but the Son. Then he goes on on the very heels of that assertion. Come unto me and I will give you rest. We cannot plumb the depths of the character and being of God, but we can come to him. We can be blessed by him. We can be welcomed by him. We can be forgiven by him. Here is the divine son. What is his son's name? Our Bible class today reminded us of this very point, the inscrutableness of God. He has depths beyond what we have. The book of Proverbs has spoken about depths, hasn't it? Uh, The counsel of the wise is like deep water. The heart of kings has depths, chapter 25, verse 3. But with God's Son, there are not only depths, there is infiniteness, endlessness, no base to those depths. We thank God and praise God that we know his name. That we have a true knowledge, not a full knowledge, but a true knowledge of God's son. We know him. We know his character. We know his importance. We know his teachings. We echo the words of the writer in the times that his standards are our aim. She writes, though often not our achievement. She aims to keep the standards of the teaching of Jesus, but but often fails in teaching those. But we know more than his teachings. And we trust that she will too. We know his love. We know his death. We know his forgiveness. We know his atonement for our sins. This very Son of God, whose name is beyond our full grasp, has loved us and given himself for us. The knowledge of God's Son is a spiritual knowledge. That's the point Jesus is making in Matthew 11 and the point God is making here to Augur in his quest for knowing God. This is something beyond human logic, human reason. It's spiritually revealed. Jesus thanks God in Matthew 11, 25 to 27, that God has hidden these things from the powerful and academics of his time. And he's revealed them. He has revealed them to his disciples. And we desire that the children in our congregation will experience the revelation of God's Son by the Father. 
but alongside of learning their counting, they will learn about Christ. That alongside of learning their spelling, they will learn the Savior. Alongside of knowing their Mass, they will know the Master. What is his name? And what is his son's name? God the Father reveals Christ to us. The second name of Jesus in Proverbs that I draw your attention to is Redeemer. Read with me chapter 23, verses 10 and 11. And I just draw your attention to the capital letter of Redeemer here. This is more than the legal Redeemer of Leviticus 25. This is Christ in Proverbs chapter 23. Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. So here is a second reference to Jesus through the theme of the Old Testament theme, the Bible theme of redemption. In the Old Testament redemption and the Redeemer is a dominant theme. We find it in the Old Testament laws, Leviticus chapter 25, to buy back land through paying a price. We find it in the, the miracle of God redeeming Israel from Egypt, setting Israel free from their slavery, from their bondage. And we were singing of it in Psalm 106. Redemption is illustrated in the story of Ruth. She was bought back, her and Naomi. Mention is made in that wonderful assertion in Job 19. I know that my Redeemer lives. In many of the Psalms there is reference to this. Psalm 49 verse 8. The ransom of their life is costly. In the prophets, redemption is mentioned in relation to the return from the exile in Babylon. God will redeem his people from captivity. The fullness of that Old Testament theme is found in Jesus in the New Testament. Mark writes in chapter 10 verse 45, The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 1.7, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 verse 18, You were ransomed from the futile ways. John in Revelation 5 verse 9 writes, Of Christ you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Redemption in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is a theme which is fulfilled and realized in the work of Jesus Christ. And in this verse, redemption and the Redeemer is mentioned. It was common in Old Testament law that when there was a, a near relative, that near relative would redeem a person who was poor, who was in debt, who was defenseless, who was an orphan. The kinsman, the close relative, redeemer. The redeemer would take care of the property, of any debts left by the departed relative. 
and would take care of the bereaved family. But it seems that by the time of Ruth, this idea of the Redeemer had become voluntary instead of compulsory, as it seems to be in Leviticus chapter 25. Hubbard suggests that the obligation of the Redeemer had extended beyond that specified in the Old Testament law and included a variety of duties and support of weakened relatives. So in this verse, the reader is assured that whatever the earthly kinsman will do or will not do, as in Ruth and Naomi's case, even if he refuses to show compassion to the bereaved and defenseless family and take on the role of the Redeemer, the poor have a Redeemer. The Lord will defend the poor against bullies, loan sharks, the exploiters of the needy. It does not seem in this verse that there is any willing Redeemer. No one willing to take on that role. So the local bully is moving in. The children perhaps are young. Perhaps their parents have passed on. There's no one near to defend them. It wasn't uncommon for land to be stolen. It wasn't uncommon for landmarks, border marks, land boundaries to be moved. It wasn't uncommon for people to use other people's fields without permission. Orphans were prime targets. But where the orphans and widows are oppressed, God says, he will step in in his providence. He will plead their cause against you. He will act as redeemer. Thus before the coming of Christ. God is in this role of Redeemer. He is defending and rescuing the poor, their Redeemer, the heavenly Redeemer, whatever earthly kinsmen people are doing or not doing, they have a Redeemer. God in heaven will plead their cause. We too need a Redeemer. We have the Redeemer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are guilty before God. We cannot save ourselves. Our conscience accuses us. Our society accuses us. Our family accuses us. How can we get out of this mess that we have got ourselves into? Our Redeemer is strong. He will free us from the guilt of our sin as we trust in him. Perhaps you're a believer and you're gripped by an addiction. I've been around the block as many of you have and seen most things and struggles that believers have. And alongside of the practical instructions that we can give them, we emphasize this point. The Redeemer is strong. He will help you break any Sinful habit. Smoking, drinking, lying, aggression, coveting, envy, gossiping. The Redeemer is strong. We're to take a leaf out of Jesus' book here. And we too are to defend the poor. To help them in any way that we can. 
In our poorer developments in the town, the poor are tools in the hands of powerful and wicked men and women. In our society, the vulnerable are exploited by sellers and by workers. And like our heavenly Redeemer, we are to plead their cause. We are to help them as he does. And thirdly, the third name of Jesus that we think of this evening is faithful friend. Here in chapter 18, verse 24, we have these wonderful and well-known words. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And throughout history, this verse has been rightly applied to the Lord Jesus. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs, as we have seen, as much counsel about our companions, about our friends. And in this verse, there are three levels of companions identified. There are companions, there is a brother, and there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The first level of, of, of companion is, is a warning that a man of friends can be broken, can be crushed, can be ruined by his companions. His friends will use him and then leave him. They will take his money, enjoy his holidays, empty his larder, use his house. And at the end, he will be broken emotionally and financially. That is Lenis. He often wondered at people in the marketplace giving more attention to the plates that they bought, scrutinizing them, examining them for, for any clipped edges or any cracks. They gave such attention to what they were buying in the marketplace and so little attention to the friends that they went around with. Level two is a brother. A brother who will always be there for us. A, a blood brother. Willing to help when called upon. But then level three is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. She will not behave like level one. She will not be reactive like level two. She's beyond that. Above that. Closer than that, a friend who sticks closer than a brother. She's like Jonathan to David, closer than his six brothers. She's like Hiram to Solomon, closer than his brother who was a rival. She's like Job's comforters to Job, but better than them. Closer than his wife was to Job. She's like John the Apostle to Jesus who was present at the cross when his brothers were nowhere to be found. This is level three companion. A friend who sticks closer than a brother. You may not have spoken to her for a year but when you speak again in a crisis they are not miffed or hurt they converse as normal. They listen and advise. If you get low and stay indoors, they'll phone you and call with you. If you're in prison, they will believe your side of the story and visit you. 
Such is the friend that is closer than a brother. And such is the friendship of Jesus. He is ever with us. I will never leave you or forsake you. He is always thinking about us and praying for us. The Bible says he ever lives at God's right hand to make intercession for us. John 15, he says to the small body of the early church, you are my friends. On radio programs, there's always an opportunity or often an opportunity to give a shout out to family and to friends. And on many occasions, the presenter has to cut short the long list of of rambling uh, that the listener goes on. They have this prepared list of people they want to mention on the radio. But strikingly and memorably on one occasion, the listener had no one to mention. The presenter was was caught off guard. Do you want to to say a a shout out to friends and family? And, And the listener said no. And and, and the presenter pressed him, come on, you've got to mention someone. No. Maybe that's you. No close confiding. No bosom buddy. No soulmate. Dreading the festive season. That's hard. But it's not hopeless. One teacher responding to a pupil who was complaining that he had no friends told him that he had ten friends. Just look at your fingers, he said, and count your fingers, and there are ten friends. You go out there and and get on with work and activity, and and before you complain about not having friends, you you look after yourself and get busy, and and soon that sense of being friendless will be taken from you. There, the master said, are, are ten friends. Maybe it worked. Maybe it didn't work. But but this verse will work. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Here is Jesus, a friend to all who put their trust in him, that sticks closer than a brother. Many books have been written on the marks of true friendship. And and we've read them, we've surveyed them. They range from six marks, seven marks, nine marks. I've read 26 marks. But one common mark in all of those lists is loyalty. There's a true friend who will stick with you through thick and thin. And here it is. He sticks close. And we ask, well, how close? Closer than a brother. Jonathan Edwards, at the the end of his life, he was surrounded by his his family. And he was able uh, to say farewell. He knew that the end of his life had come. And he was able to speak to the members of his, his large family and his close friends. And when he'd completed that, he said as his last words, 
Now where is Jesus of Nazareth? My true and never failing friend. And he, he grasped this from Proverbs. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Jesus Christ through his cross, through the regeneration in our hearts is a friend. He's the enemy of many. He will mete out judgment on multitudes at the last day, but he's our friend. And what a friend that sticks closer than a brother. So he's the divine son. He's the mighty redeemer. He's the faithful friend. Let us love him more and more and seek that others will love him for the first time. I, I love uh, what Lord Brooks did. He, he valued so much the friendship that he had with Sir Philip Sidney that the epitaph that he put on his gravestone was this. Here lies Sir Philip Sidney's friend. Let us go home this evening thinking of our privileged position as believers in Christ. I, you, we are Jesus' friend.